Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Now I can't get Austin Powers out of my head. <laughs> Do I make you horny, baby? It's <laughs> a warm up. It's a warm up. Yeah. I was like, man, I haven't podcasted in a while because I was on my honeymoon. So I was just repeating Austin Powers quotes. <laughs> to get, to, to get uh, your voice warmed up, right? To get, to get the voice warmed up. And now I can't even think about anything else. Do I get you, Randy, baby? Faja, 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 can you hear me? This is what um, happens what is when we don't Austin podcast Powers? for like two weeks. <laughs> yeah. What is the best Austin Powers? Austin, Austin, Austin Powers movie. The best one? I yeah. like the I like the first one, honestly. I think it's a classic. It is the, it's like, like the Borat movies. I just think it's the first one is always the best one. Yeah, they're honestly the only funny movie that Mike Myers ever did. His other movies aren't very funny, but these are some of the funniest movies ever made, in my yeah. in my humble opinion. I I'd don't agree. think I've laughed as hard as watching all of them. They're just hilarious. Um, I think the third one might be my favorite, though. Is that the one with the uh, uh, smoking a member? pancake? Uh, yeah, smoking a pancake. <laughs> I lost my strong in an unfortunate smelting accident. <laughs> Get, it's just, there's so many so many funny characters all right we need to do a podcast on um a historical geopolitical topic um thanks for kind of handling the rain since i've been gone um i am just getting back from the peninsula of italy which is pretty which was pretty fun um so today's episode might be just an hour photo shoot of my or slideshow <laughs> of my vacation audio slideshow right you're just going to describe Aud- the pictures audio you slideshow while i describe every single picture in my catalog no we're not going to do that uh, but no italy's a lovely country um i'll tell you about it later um we're going to talk about and this may even end up being a series because there's a lot of cases but um you know there's um obviously there's there's tensions bulking up in the Balkans, um, <laughs> no pun intended. There's um, boiling up in the Balkans, and in the context of history, it's never a good thing. To uh, sum this up very quickly, Kosovo's government started requiring its Serbian residents to switch their Serbian license plates to uh, Kosovo ones last year, and uh, you know Kosovo initially backtracked on this, but tried to introduce the the policy again this summer alongside like another system of uh, like entry permits for, for visitors from Serbia. So in response, the, the Kosovar Serbs, they blocked roads and, and set up barricades and, and, and protest. And clashes broke out. None of them were really violent, but 
this has led to the, the Serbian president, uh, Vucic, to accuse Kosovo of uh, planning to launch an attack against the Serbs in northern Kosovo. And the Serbian government has stated that, you know, if this is going to happen, then they're going to come to their aid. And, you know, most recently we're, we're podcasting this on uh, August 28th, Sunday morning. I think last, yesterday they started bringing uh, like artillery to the to the border of Kosovo huh. to uh, kind of just you know say hey this we're serious about this we're going to do it because we know we can't depend on NATO or anything like that or the EU to do anything so this is going to be in our hands and of course um, it's come under backlash but I think that honestly this will most likely be settled but it's always scary when when the Balkans are a hot spot especially yeah. because like um, there's so many World War One obviously started in the Balkans and then you can even argue that what's led to one of the origins of the current crisis in Ukraine it actually kind of goes back to Kosovo with the with the U.S. intervention because that's when uh, Russian policy changed internally of being very kind of nervous about NATO expansion. So it's it's always never a uh, great thing when there are uh, ethnic tensions in, in one of the countries in, in uh, the Balkans regions. But I don't know, maybe we should just go through brief history because this is going to kind of uh, re- relate to the larger theme of today's episode. If you're not familiar, oh, go ahead. I said, if you're not familiar with the history, uh, you know, Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008. Serbia accuses Kosovo of trampling on the rights of minority and Serbs, uh, minority Serbs who account for about 5% of the population in Kosovo. There's about 1.8 million people who live there. 90% of the population there is Albanian. And in the background of all this is, of course, the NATO bombing campaign in 1999. Uh, you know, previously NATO launched a bombing campaign in Kosovo, uh, which forced Serbian forces to withdraw from the area during the war between the uh, Kosovo Liberation Army and Serbia. And we did an entire series on this if you want to check out the full uh, context on this. But, uh, you know, this eventually leads to, in 2008, Kosovo declaring its independence, a move that's been protested by the Serbs. You know, they still view Kosovo as, as its rightful territory. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that in reality, since 1999, Kosovo has been under international supervision. So for all intensive purposes, it's under micromanagement by the West. So it's, it's, it's a dependent state on, on international aid. Um, you know, Kosovo is among the poorest countries in Europe, and the region has been underdeveloped for centuries. So both, both under the rule of the Turks and the Serbs. Uh, you know, when it was part of Yugoslavia, when it was part of Serbia, it's always been kind of an underdeveloped region. And, uh, you know, to put this into context, in terms of per capita terms, Kosovo has received the largest flow of aid ever distributed to any country. So uh, like 25 times more than Afghanistan in terms of per capita, um, the amount of international aid that Kosovo is, has received. Now, um, this is going to kind of translate to a larger theme of today's episode is but one of the countries that supports Serbia's claim to Kosovo is Spain. 
which on the surface level sounds kind of random. You know, Spain is one of, uh, you know, five European Union member states that still um, hasn't recognized Kosovo. And, you know, the other ones being Cyprus, Greece, Romania, and Slovakia. And um, this is what actually inspired this episode. Um, you know, our, our friend Jose Nino, you know, he had recently, he wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about this. I don't know, you, maybe you want to take this reading. Yeah, for sure. So he wrote, uh, one has to wonder why Spain, a country that is loyal acolyte to the EU universalist agenda, sticking up for Serbia. Spain has a vested interest in promoting territorial integrity due to the separatist movements it has had to confront with its border over the past few decades, the most notable being the Catalonian independence movement. For Spain, the recognition of Kosovo's independence could establish a bad precedent that would rekindle secessionist settlements in Catalonia. We must remember that Catalonian citizens voted in a referendum to leave Spain by a resounding margin of 92% to 8%, which provoked a constitutional crisis in Spain and an eventual suppression of this separatist movement by government authorities. However, a reinvigorated Catalan separatist movement is only scratching the surface when it comes to Spain hypothetically abandoning its pro-territorial integrity approach to diplomatic affairs. There are already smaller yet growing separatist movements in regions such as Andalusia, Aragon, Asturias, the Basque Country, Castile, Galicia, and Valencia. Valencia, I should say. A move to officially recognize Kosovo's independence would witness the veritable fragmentation of Spain. The Kosovo independence scenario could create a domino effect that goes beyond Spain as countries like the United Kingdom and France already have their own separatist movements. Kosovo has a population of slightly below 2 million, but if geopolitics has taught us anything, it's that big developments can be ignited by the smallest of actors. The Spanish understand that very well. For this reason, they will go to great lengths to not recognize or facilitate any form of independence in Kosovo. The full formalization of Kosovar independence could have a ripple effect across Europe that would likely result in the fragmentation of some of Europe's long-standing great powers. For now, Spain and other countries dealing with separatism will try to maintain the status quo for as long as possible. Any move towards territorial rearrangements could create ex existential crises for many of Europe's well-established civilizations. It's an interesting point. Well, you know, what I found really interesting about this is that, you know, that is kind of like the gut level reaction when you see, okay, why is Spain supporting Serbia on this? Right, like this, like, no, Spain is, <laughs> yeah, Spain is pretty lockstep with, with, um, you know, U.S. policy and, and European policy, but the, they're the outlier here. So what, what's behind this? And then you just got to think about it a little bit like, oh yeah, they have a lot of different separatist movements within their borders. Uh, most notably and most famously, it's the Catalonian movement. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been to Barcelona before? I've never been to Spain before. Okay. I've never been to Spain either. But from what I hear, it's a thing in Barcelona. Um, but I think the larger context is that almost every country in Europe has their kind of ethnic-based minorities. Mm -hmm. Um you know, every country, every state in Europe has at least one group of territorial-based ethnic minorities who may or could potentially be involved in some type of separatist movement. And, you know, these movements range from, you know, wanting their own separate sovereign state to creating an autonomous zone to wanting to be annexed by a neighboring country. You know, um, you know an example would be Crimea recently. 
mm-hmm. um, or you know the the eastern you know the Donbass region, Luhansk and Donetsk, who you know yep. voted to become part of Russia. Um, you know these these movements they also range in their level of militancy. Some of these secession movements are willing to go to war, so Russians in Ukraine, um, and then some will try to achieve autonomy through completely democratic means, which an example would be the Catalans in Spain. Mm-hmm. You know, many times these groups turn militant when when democratic mechanisms don't um, you know work. And, you know, some, you know, another example, some will resort to terrorism. So, you know, you can use, you know, Catholics in Northern Ireland um, and, and also Basque in Spain. And, right. you know, we, we why don't why don't we why don't we talk about some of the examples of, of some of these current separatist movements? Because when you when you brought up the idea to, to cover some separatist movements and sent me that article, I was incredibly surprised at just how many there are. And there's there's so many. And, and it's not just in places like, you know, Ukraine, where you, know, you get a lot of news about, you know, separatist movements. It's in the very well-established large countries like France and Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands, you know, like there's so many of them. So let, let's talk about a few. Yeah. So just about every single state in Europe has a separatist movement. And that's what I think we can kind of turn this into a larger series and talk about separatist movements, not only in Spain, which we're going to concentrate on, but also in places like Belgium and France and Germany and the Netherlands and um, really pretty much everywhere, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much every state, because it's interesting because, um, you know, you could see a future Europe that is, you know, balkanized again or borders changing right. again. Like look at countries like Poland you know, they just kind of appear out of nowhere and disappear throughout history. Right. Um, but, you know, there's um, in Belgium, you know, Belgium is, is split linguistically. There's uh, a Dutch, there's a French, there's a German speaking community there. Um, in the German speaking community, there's been a push to create an autonomous uh, area of eastern Belgium. There's also a Flemish movement who want to, uh, you know, reunify or, or they want unification with the Netherlands. There's the Walloons, who Walloons. want to be part of France. Um, you know, France itself has a bunch of different separatist movements. The the, the two ones that people, um, you know, maybe maybe they're the most well known are the the movements to make the island of uh, Corsica its own state. You know, this is the island that Napoleon is from. Then there is a French Basque country, and you know, there's also Basque separatist movement in Spain. Which we're gonna we're gonna talk about today, um, but also Germany as well. You know, there, Germany has a Danish population that has proposed unification with Denmark. There's also been a uh, proposal to create a free state of Bavaria. Um, I mean, you know, Ger- you've lived in Germany. You know, Bavaria is kind of like um, like a red state in the U.S., right? Mm, totally. Yeah, they're extremely conservative. Yeah, it, it's like the Catholic. Um, very, very Catholic, very conservative, uh, especially as, as like if you look at Munich, well, Munich's th- still pretty liberal in, in, in with respect to it. But greater Bavaria, as opposed to, say, I don't know, Berlin, <laughs> you couldn't get more diametrically opposed politically uh, uh, there, I think. Yeah, Berlin is basically a large Brooklyn. Yep. It's 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 a big old liberal state. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really Berlin awesome is very... Though. It, I've been to Berlin, and it very much reminded me of like a huge 
well, I bet Berlin and Brooklyn are roughly around the same size. I'd imagine. But it yeah. reminded me a lot of Brooklyn. Um, mm-hmm. Very much. It, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's always there's been um, rumblings about separation there. I don't know how far that has gone or if there's any been any political action but that'd be something interesting in, in, in exploring like a Bavaria's got a very a, proud history uh yeah so they 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 have a very unique um uh culture and and uh and um almost almost uh nationalism to them so it, it wouldn't be beyond the the realm of possibility that they decide to make their own thing but um germany generally speaking is very prosperous as is uh munich so unless they are very opposed politically. I, I can't see that happening anytime soon, but I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll do a whole episode on it and we'll figure it out together. Yeah. We'll pay attention to the, the current economic crisis going on in Germany. Cause those are the type of things that lead to secession movements and, and uh, a, um, you know, political crises, but it's all oppression and economics. Really? That's, that's yeah. the big drivers. Yeah. Um, but when I think of Bavaria, I just think of beer and yodeling, you know? <laughs> you wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> beer and yodeling. Um, you wouldn't be wrong. Another good example is Italy. Yep. You know, Italy Italy has always been a very fragmented state, you know, with, with rival city-states. There's always been different cultures across Italy. There's always been different dialects of Italian. Uh, my wife, for example... She can, her family's from Naples. She can understand Italian when she speaks to somebody from Northern Italy. When she speaks to somebody from Naples, she can kind of understand and communicate, but she can't do it with somebody from Sicily. Mm. And in Italy, it's something I, I've noticed is that because we were in the Naples area, we were in Rome, and then we went down to, um, to the Amalfi Coast and, and um, Sorrento, the Sorrento Peninsula. People from Na- Naples, they kind of have this superior uh, superiority complex over people from Sicily. Okay. And even it even extends to like the US as well. Like people who trace their family origins back to Naples or you know they're like, "Oh, fucking Sicilians. I, you know, my my daughter's marrying a Sicilian. No way, no <laughs> how that's happening." Or they'll be like, "Yo, she her family's from Naples. She should know better." <laughs> 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 Yo, Good thing you're not from Sicily, Henry. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's like a funny kind of Italian thing where they they look down in other regions of Italy, but then but then um, Italians from Naples they complain about Northern Italians looking down on them. They're like, oh, they fuck you know these people from Milan and Florence and Tuscany. They look down on us and and because <laughs> Naples is kind of a rough area. Um, we, we got, when I got into Naples, the way I would describe it is, uh, Tampa Bay, Tampa, if Tampa Bay, Bay <laughs> got hit by a category five earthquake. <laughs> That's what Naples oh, looks Christ. like. Oh man. It's not, it's kind of a scary place to walk around. Um, I'll be completely honest. No offense to Naples. Just the way it looks uh, to you. <laughs> and the way it, the way it looks and the amount of, uh, like muggings and burglary. Jesus. That goes on there. Sounds like Tampa. <laughs> Over overall, it's I think it's it's relatively safe, but you know, I didn't really feel very comfortable there. But um, all right, not to digress too much. The larger point is that you know European states are fragmented. You can always see a future where where states are further fragmented or fragmented or or borders change in the future. Um, 
know, European borders are always shifting. And it's just not really, it's, it's not impossible to imagine, you know, in 50 years, a completely different map of Europe. Um, I mean, just think about all the new states that, been, that have been created um, just within the past 30 years. You got the, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Montenegro, Ukraine, Kosovo. Um, there's been so many new states that have been um, that have been created over the past the past uh, 30 years, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union. And is there going to be like another um, cataclysmic type government failure in Europe? Hopefully not, because that sounds pretty scary if that were to happen. But yeah. you know how like when people talk about Russia and or neoconservatives types in, in the U.S. or in the West talk about like the future of Russia, they always draw maps of like a completely balkanized Russia of like, yeah. oh, you got the Moscow region and then you got the Caucasus and then you have Siberia. the Siberian territory. They like, right. kind of like mm-hmm. make the whole new Europe, basically. I mean, I feel like that could just as easily happen in other states in um, in Europe. Yeah, uh, I mean, just as recently, the borders changed between East and West Germany. I mean, they were two separate countries, and now they're a country. And um, I mean, we'll see. It should be interesting. It depends on really how much economic, uh, how much economic and political discontent go on. Which yep. there is how a much lot oppression of right now. there is against uh, ethnic minorities. Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, there's not too much like hard oppression on ethnic minorities in most EU states. I think well, it would be more we'll kind see. of an economic, political type thing if it were really to happen, which we'll get into uh, Spain as as an example. But you know, Spain is Spain is really that is that kind of um, that really good example of a very autonomous, um, regionally diverse state, which we don't really think about. It's almost like a, it's almost oh, like ahead. a federation of, of independent like ethnic states, almost. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the flag it's, itself, the flag, uh, you know, shows that coat of arms, and in that coat of arms, there's the flags of multiple uh, of the larger um, uh, micro states in them. So yeah, it's it, they they are one unified country, but in many ways, you know, they recognize that they are a. Uh, almost like a federation of, of smaller microstates. Yeah. It, it, and, and then, the, you know, the Catalan movement is, um, you know, definitely the most well-known one to, to you know, us in the United States. It's probably the most well-known independence movement in Europe right now. And, you know, one has to really wonder why does everyone freak out whenever anything happens in Catalonia or whenever there's a vote for Catalonian independence or whenever there's kind of independence rhetoric. It's because, um, I mean, do people really, do people outside of Spain really care that much about, you know, where Barcelona is located? If Barcelona is located in Spain or if it's located in, you know, a new Catalonian state? Everybody I don't think people... Everybody wants to vacation in a safe, sp- in a safe space. <laughs> That's all <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, say. I guess so. <laughs> Barcelona is a good, is a, is a... Huge vacation you know, spot. A well-known vacation spot. And we're, you know, a lot of people study abroad in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the real reason why people pay attention is because of the implications that an independent Catalonia would be for not only Spain, but for the rest of Europe. So just, just to go back to, you know, your, you know, Spain is kind of like a federation. It's Spain's broken down into 17 different autonomous regions. 
and each of these autonomous communities basically has their own constitution. For example, they can control their education, their healthcare systems, they can impose their own taxes. Um, in the case of uh, you know the Basque country, Galicia and Catalonia, these three regions are considered historic nationalities. You know, they, they carry non-Castilian identities, and they also have uh, distinct languages and cultures. So why do you think that Spain is, you know, operating in a, such a decentralized manner? In short, I mean, I think the decentralized model is a result of, of uh, attempts to modernize Spain in the end of the, the 70s and the 80s. Um, I guess what happened is that Spanish nationalism kind of got a bad reputation after Fra- after the Franco era, mm-hmm. and this led to the you know the Spanish state to pursue more of a policy of decentralization. Um, you know, at, you know, Spain is a, di- a diverse country, you know, not just ethnically or linguistically, but also culturally and economically as well. Um, you know, today's um, you know regional national groups who 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 face uh, you know, Castilian cultural hegemony, and, and, and um, you know, they, they, in response to that, they demand autonomy, and not really just to preserve their languages, but also for economic and also political reasons as well. You know, a lot of them look at the Spanish state as kind of inefficient and unable to, um, you know, deliver, uh, you know, daily or, or um, you know, normal um, kind of government functions to them, and they think that, you know, operating at a smaller level or at a state level or at the autonomous level will just make things run more efficient. There, there's different reasons why these different uh, autonomous zones want their, um, you know, complete autonomy, but those are, those are just a few. Um, and the reason why the Spanish have to, the Spanish government has to uh, kind of have this structure is because it's, it's in order to keep political stability because you've got to think about it. Spain, I mean, all these European countries have been really diverse and, you know, just, there's been different conquerors in these European countries. Um, you know, Spain was, you know, a union of different kingdoms together in, in the 15, 1400s, 1500s. And, um, you know, the Spain, as we know, it really wasn't created after until the Spanish War of Secession. Um, you know, pr- it was prior to that. It was ruled by the Habsburgs. Um, so it's an interesting country with, that had a lot of shifting borders. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, the Spanish language and forget about that because just the Spanish language has been exported so efficiently, mm-hmm. you know, you'd, you'd have to think that the origin country of the Spanish language is, is kind of like this rock solid, um, state, but right. it isn't necessarily, nope. um, but you know, you would think that just because, I mean, I don't know what the percentage of the world that speaks Spanish, but it's, it's huge. One of the top. <laughs> five yeah. languages in the world at the yeah, very least huge. i would imagine maybe a third or fourth mm-hmm. i mean After, uh, maybe we can talk some of the history there's there's a uh, an article that we have here from the harvard national review from 1980 that kind of goes over uh, a lot of this a lot of these topics that we're going to bring up so i'll just read from that um it, it, they write uh spain's de- uh, democratic recuperation began in earnest after the general elections of june 1977 and peaked in December 1978 with the popular ratification of the Constitution, written by the first democratically elected Cortes, or the Spanish bicameral parliament, in 41 years. More recently, Spain took another important step with the approval statutes of the autonomy for the Basque Country, Catalonia, and Galicia. 
the question of nationalities has been an important factor throughout the history of Spain. And in the 20th century, coinciding with Spain's growing economic power, nationalist fervor has helped produce the political tensions and destabilization. The Spanish population is not uniform, for it has different national communities, among which are the Galatians, the Basques, the Catalonians, which distinguish themselves by having distinct languages and cultures. But history has seen the Cast that Castilians spread their language and culture over mo most of the country, to the extent of making the former into the official state language and the latter into predominant culture. The cultural predominance has not resolved the problem of nationalities, but rather has exacerbated it. Furthermore, the problem is even more complicated because national regions once possessed a judicial political independence of which they were later deprived. Thus today, not only do smaller national groups who face Castilian cultural hegemony demand autonomy, but so do other regions like Andalusia, Extra, oh Jesus, Extremadura, Aragon, the Canary Islands, and others that base their demands on history or in economics. Therefore, segments of the population demand the statute of autonomy to preserve a distinct language and culture in some cases and to attain greater economic development and equality that it arrives from self-government and greater control over one's natural resources. The new Spanish constitution guarantees the right of autonomy of the nationalities, quote-unquote, and regions, quote-unquote, that compromise Spain, although a distinction between the two terms is not made. So far, Parliament has passed the Statute of Autonomy for the Basque Country, Catalonia, and Galicia, the first to have also been approved by referendum. This requisite is still pending for the third. So maybe we can talk a little bit about Basque. This is the one that I know the least about, and I was hoping that you can teach me a bit about, because I focus more on Catalonia. Yeah, so um, it's important to note that the Catalonian independence movement hasn't been... It, it hasn't only been the historic, it's not the only independence movement or hasn't been the only independence movement within Spain. Um, the most important political movement in Spain used to be the Basque people. It was called the Basque problem. And Are you I'm talking, talking about, about the, the ETA, the, uh, the terrorist yeah. group or whatever they're called? Yeah. So the ETA, um, they were, they were a legit terror organization within Spain. They killed almost a thousand people since 19 to the 1960s. They wounded and maimed thousands of more. Um, they disbanded in 2018, but they were a real national security threat. You know, um, murdering. They were kind of like the IRA in, in uh, Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, they were murdering people. Um, you know, bombings uh, like pipe bombings and things like that, or car bombings. In fact, if you remember the Madrid train bombing in 2004, yeah, it was like the big, it was you know the big terror attack after 9/11 that happened. Mm -hmm. it, was, mm -hmm. it was the worst terror attack in Europe since um, you know Pan Am Flight 103. Well, the ETA was initially blamed for those bombings, hmm. and it ended up they, they had nothing to do with it. It was Al Qaeda who perpetrated that terror attack, and um, but even after those Al Qaeda guys were arrested for for the bombing the ETA was still being blamed by the Spanish media. That's interesting. So, I mean, that, that was a level of um, kind of uh, terror that was spread or the amount of attention that they were getting, which just shows you how hated these guys were. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, maybe we can take a moment to talk about like the Basque movement in general, which the ETA is, is fighting for. Uh, because I think it's kind of a very different movement, it sounds like, from the Catalonian independence movement, which is, at least in, in modern history, much more peaceful. Yeah, so the Basque people are arguably the oldest surviving ethnic group in all of Europe. That's interesting. They, they come, yeah, they come from the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains um, around the, the Bay of Biscay in the northern, northern Spain and, and also southern France. And they're kind of like Spain and France's version of the Kurds. Okay. Ancient mountain people who don't want to be ruled, who, you know, they their their population is spread out beyond multiple states like the Kurds who are spread out beyond, you know, uh, across Turkey and Syria, Iraq, Iraq and Syria. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. that's kinda of like the Basque people. They're spread out um, they're they're spread out across that the border of um, of Spain and France. And the reason why they're they're spread out, and the reason why they still exist, is because they they, they were never really conquered. Well, they, they were never cro- conquered in the ancient world because they were up in the mountains and they didn't really have fertile lands. So while the the Celts and the Gauls were being um, you know sacked by and, and conquered by the Romans and the Visigoths and all the groups coming after, you know, all the successors of the Romans. And they kind of were um, unmolested, if you would say, <laughs> for a large yeah. period of history until... Nobody wants to go and fight the, in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to deal with that. So they kind of leave these people alone. So they they um, they remain kind of their own group until the Spanish conquered the Basque territory in around the 1500s. But, you know, the Spanish at the time were... They had the resourcefulness or the the political um, attitude of giving them autonomy just because they didn't want to deal with rebellions and things like that. But eventually, the Spanish and the French pressured them to assimilate, and that's pretty much when, that's pretty much what kickstarted their national movements when, you know, nationalism began to become a thing in in the uh, 19th and 18th century. That's when you see these giant nationalization processes to kind of assimilate other cultures to Spanish. And that's when the Basque people were specifically targeted. They're kind of like the the, the Uyghurs in China. Yeah. You know, there was totally. a big nationalization project to kind of bring modern, kind of enlightened or modern Spanish liberal culture to these people up in the mountains. And 
that kicks everything off and, cre- and creates this kind of backlash and, and, and these, uh, you know, uh, backward or what you would call backward territories in Spain and France. And um, this is kind of what, this is when Basque terrorism becomes a thing. The, the ETA, it's founded in 1959, and the um, expectation was that after Franco died in 1975, that these guys would go away. Um, but because uh, the new Spanish government made, uh, you know, these political reforms um, and gave them autonomy, it ends up actually getting worse. You know, the, you know, the Basque terrorism actually is a, is a, it actually extends throughout the 80s and 90s. And that same Harvard uh, review paper, this is a segment right here, the Basque demands for autonomy become the most important political, the Basque demands for autonomy become the most important political political issues in Spain when one nationalist group, Basque Country and Freedom, ETA, used terrorist attacks in pursuits of its ends. The political reforms that followed General Francisco Franco's death in November 1975 did little to assuage the separatist sentiment among many Basques. In fact, the erroneous pre-autonomous and law and order policies of the new government exasperated tensions and pushed the radical groups into even more extreme tactics. Nationalist extremists harassed the government with street demonstrations and wildcat strikes. The government responded with violent repressive measures, but rather than quieting the ETA, the repression resulted in an escalation of terrorist activities. ETA assassinations and bombings began to kill private citizens as well as civil servants, military officers, and police. Thus, life in Basque region continued under extreme tensions and extreme tension in an almost constant state of siege. That is that is so crazy different to the model and modern like uh, Catalan movement. Um, at least to my, to my knowledge, there hasn't been like fire bombings <laughs> from no. Catalonia. They, they, they definitely have like the police in the modern police force in Catalonia has had skirmishes with the Spanish police forces, uh, specifically during during voting um, periods. But n- nothing this crazy. Um, maybe maybe we can move on to Catalonia to, to, to kind of do a bit of a uh, bit of a comparison point. Yeah, so the autonomous region of Catalonia, it, um, it occupies in an, an area in the northeastern corner of Spain. So it's bordered by France and Andorra to the north, the Mediterranean Sea to the east, um, and then the uh, autonomous community of Valencia to the south, um, and then Aragon <coughs> to the west. Right. That actually, it's it's pretty old too. Not quite as old as Basque. It starts around like 800, uh, just after the 711 Muslim invasion, who displaced like the Visigoths that were around there. And the Franks actually set up these these border warlords in Catalonia and some other areas along uh, the French border to create kind of like a buffer zone with the Muslims and would support them. And they were basically the warriors that would beat back, um, you know, the, the Muslim invaders uh, and. You know, they created uh, a bunch of these uh, counties. One of them was the the county of Barcelona, uh, as well as um, the county of Asturias, uh, which basically formed the the basis for what was called later the Reconquista of Spain, where they start kicking out all the Muslims. Uh, Asturias later became the kingdom of Leon, and uh, the county of Barcelona ended up marrying into 
uh, Leon to form what was called the Crown of Leon, which which eventually made the Kingdom of Aragon. It's kind of a complicated history, but a, a lot of uh, a lot of Game of Thrones vibes here. <laughs> people marrying people to yeah. make stronger states. Well, I, I guess when na- when Catalonia uh, nationalism started to, to um, really become a thing in the 1800s or late 1800s, they romanticized the time when Catalonia was this powerful regent within the crown of Aragon. Right. And, um, you know, the crown of Aragon was a medieval kingdom that lasted from, you know, the 12th to the 15th century with Barcelona serving as its primary or its capital. And at its height, it was, a, it was a, you know, the dominant power in present-day eastern Spain. So, uh, you know, parts of what is now uh, southern France, um, you know, it was, it was um, you know, had a Mediterranean empire, which, in, which um, included places like um, Sicily and, and Corsica and, and Sardinia and Malta and then even parts of southern Italy and Greece. Mm-hmm. So, like all origin stories, it was considered to be this golden age of uh, cultural and and, uh, and uh, economic prosperity within within uh, that kingdom. Right, and and this happens to be one of the points in history where they start making arguments for, um, but also against, you know, the independence of Catalonia. And on one side, uh, the the Catalans like to um, point out that you know way back in this time period. They were a strong and prosperous nation, even though they were a uh, uh, an independent regional movement inside the Crown of Leon or the Kingdom of Aragon. They uh, maintained that they had, you know, a, a strong presence and a strong, um, almost quasi-nationalist, because this is obviously before nationalism uh, movement uh, and his- historical point then. But um, there's also uh, arguments against it, which say that, well, you were just a part of the Kingdom of Aragon. That wasn't a thing. Uh, you were just a small region within a, a larger thing. But nevertheless, we'll, we'll get more into that later. Um, I think as early as 1167, though, there are mentions of Catalonia specifically uh, having its own legal entity uh, with its own political system and judicial system uh, that was independent of Aragon, which further um, pushes the point of, of like this historical Catalonian, um, you know, thingness. <laughs> I don't know what to call it, you know, that they were a yeah. thing. Yeah, and, and I guess what... Um, unites the kingdom of Aragorn with with Spain or the Castiles is that there's a marriage that takes place between Ferdinand II. And this is in like 1469. Um, Ferdinand II of Aragon with Isabella of Castile, their marriage creates the United Kingdom of Spain, and and this um, this actually kicks off rule by uh, the House of Habsburgs. Right. Now, a little bit later during that, the Franco-Spanish War, uh, the Spanish had to put um, troops basically on the border of France because they were obviously fighting with them, uh, and in particular in Catalonia. And this created a, a ton of tension because, you know, soldiers tend to do fucked up things uh, when they're stationed in places. Uh, so they, they, you know, they started messing with the local populations, stealing. There was lots of accounts of rape, uh, which obviously created not so great uh, interactions between the local Catalans and the Spanish uh, armies. And that led actually in 1640 uh, to the what was called the Reaper's War, uh, where a local population uh, in Catalan rose up against the Spanish soldiers that were stationed there. And they basically used these like sickles or reapers uh, and like murdered them all, uh, which was crazy. Um, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And it this is one of the first points where uh, they established kind of like a uh, 
what was called the Republica Catalana, which is, you know, the creation of a quasi-separatist state. But that state didn't last very long. Um, and it was, uh, uh, they, they initially couldn't stand up to the all of Spain at the same time. So they, they aligned with the French, actually. And they, they put King Louis XVIII uh, as the Count of Barcelona just to get some French protection. So there's definitely some back and forth uh, on arguments. Here's another one of those points where on one side, you know, the, the Catalans say, well, hey, we had this, you know, uh, Republica Catalana, which is was you know, a de facto separatist state at the time. Um, so that that makes us a thing. And on the other side, on the Spanish side, they say, well, no, you immediately aligned with the French and you were under, you know, the, the King Louis XVIII was the Count of Barcelona. So that's not legitimate, you know. Um, and again, you can also argue that they had to do that because there's no way they could stand up to the rest of Spain, right? So a lot of really complicated argumentation going on around this period, but uh, they were eventually able to beat back the Spanish and hold their independence for a little bit. But when the Spanish and French hostilities ended, uh, Catalonia ends up going back um, to Spain. So. Yeah, and then after Charles II died, um, the last Habsburg king of Spain there was a huge war that breaks out between his heirs and, and, and due to the Spanish War of Secession, um, you know, Catalonia is kind of, uh, uh, I don't know the exact history on this, but it kind of loses, it picks the wrong side in between yeah. Charles II's heirs. I got And you. They're, they're officially absorbed into, you know, Spain or what is now the modern borders of Spain. That's right. Yeah, so they, Philip V was the next in line uh, for uh, Spain, but... Since he was kind of a part of the French house, um, that created a bit of a risk um, of creating like a French and Spanish megastate. Because as you've seen with a lot of these other, um, you know, marriages that came beforehand, every time, you know, a ruling member of one house marries into uh, a ruling member of another uh, kingdom, they generally form one larger kingdom. And, and a lot of the uh, other EU kingdoms, uh, like the Holy Roman Empire and, and many others, really didn't like the idea because it would create a giant megastate. Um, and they started courting uh, some of the breakaway regions. Uh, one of them was the Catalonians. Uh, Catalonians sided with those EU kingdoms uh, against Philip V uh, to be the, you know, the, the king. But ends up being that Philip V ended up on the throne anyway. And he ends up punishing the Catalans for their treachery. So he did things like make Castilian the official language. Here's where we're starting to see like the very successful exportation of, of what we now know as Spanish or Castilian Spanish, uh, you know, throughout the regions. Um, they made it illegal to teach in Catalan, right? So like now it's even worse. Uh, they also started moving a lot of their university professors out of like Barcelona uh, and other regions of Catalan. They moved them around to other parts of Spain to reduce the Catalan cultural impact. And they would import, obviously, Castilian uh, uh, professors. Now, the crown of Aragon ended up being abolished in 1716 under the new Bourbon dynasty. And in that time, Castile became the centralized power. And the Catalan, like the cultural privileges that the Catalonians had, end up being suppressed even further. Um, well, there ends up being a movement in the mid-19th century to re revive that Catalan culture, language, and identity. And, you know, around that time was the Industrial Revolution, which was kind of a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, Catalonia becomes uh, a bit of an industrial powerhouse, right? And this is a lot of, 
you know, where we, this is the formation of where we see the strength of the Catalan region today uh, being very prosperous economically. But at the same time, uh, it also, uh, it, like it, it starts creating a bourgeois class, right? People who are making a lot of money because of this, but it also brought a shit ton of non-Catalan speakers to the region who were looking for work. And with more industrialization also created like worsening working conditions, which obviously created a bit of a class struggle. Uh, so there is a lot of um, a lot of tension there. But all this gets interrupted because the Carlos Wars start happening. And we discussed at length on our episodes about the Spanish-American War, uh, all about the Carlos Wars. So if you want to check out more context there, uh, you can listen to those episodes. However, what's important to know about uh, this time period is that the Catalans supported the Carlists, or what were kind of known as the old guard, over the, the more liberal government under Queen Isabella because they believed that they had better chances at autonomy with the Carlists, they thought that the Carlists would would um, make good on on the original status of, of Catalonia as a autonomous region. Of course, the spoiler alert for this one is that the Carlists lost not once but twice, so things didn't really end up very well for Catalonia. So now we have like three instances where Catalonia backs the wrong horse uh, and you know loses out three times, and every time it happens, you know they start losing more and more of their autonomy, more and more of their culture and language. You know, by this point in the early 20th century, what was most important for Catalonia was was the idea of republicanism and autonomy over independence. All they wanted to do was just, you know, they, they didn't mind being a part of a larger thing, but they just wanted their own autonomy and to be able to, you know, uh, express themselves, uh, in particular their language. Um, but, you know, breakaways, uh, states from Spain, which we talked a lot about on our episodes of the Spanish-American War, places like Puerto Rico and Cuba, that actually ended up having the effect of fostering nationalism in Catalonia, which is also, fun fact, why the Catalan flag looks so much like the Cuban and Puerto Rican flags. They added that little tr blue triangle with the uh, white star on there, um, in uh, almost like in support of those. By 1922, we see a creation of the uh, Estat Catalan Party, um, which was pushing for just straight up independence. Um, and then this guy, Miguel Primo de Rivera, ends up becoming the leader of Spain after a coup. Uh, and this guy was super conservative and cracked down on pretty much everything Catalan, including all of their um, freedoms. And, and what that did was push the Catalans farther to the left. That's kind of important because they end up having... Uh, a lot of communist and even anarchist uh, um, uh, tendencies later on in history. Um, in 34, Catalonia, they tried to secede outright and they were successful. Uh, fun fact, it only lasted 10 hours <laughs> before they got roped back into the fold. So there, there's another uh, point where Catalonians are like, hey, no, in 34, we were our own thing for 10 straight hours, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. Um and then in the late 30s, uh, during the Spanish Civil War, there were various events which saw uh, Catalan rise and fall. But, you know, ultimately it ended with the dictatorship of Franco, who we talked a little bit about before. And he really, really cracked down on Catalonia and its language. Uh, Franco also shifted the economic model again. Uh, so he starts bringing more non-Catalans to Catalonia, uh, which made the Catalonian situation a bit more tenuous because now we're, you know, um, kind of it's almost like a cultural genocide in that respect when you're like just mixing in a bunch more people to, uh, uh, you know, 
depurify the region of its of its original um well, uh, go ahead or orwell that's where orwell fought orwell fought during the spanish america not spanish america war during the spanish civil war yep uh george orwell you wrote a whole um, book on this wrote actually a book called yeah. homage to catalonia mm-hmm. uh you know he kind of gives his firsthand account about what he saw during the spanish uh, civil war um it's interesting a lot of those you know how like a lot of like socialist because Orwell was a socialist, um, right? A, like a socialist who was very critical of like socialism. It, kind of a weird background, but um, he, a, a lot of those writers and stuff um, who kind of romanticized the, Sp- this, the Spanish Civil War uh, fought in Catalonia. Mm-hmm. So you got like from the late '30s to, through 1975, like a really bad period of time for Catalonians. And for the Catalan culture and language and, and um, you know, uh, uh, independence movements. But by the time he died in 75, it gave a bit of breathing room for Catalonia, uh, which, again, increased Catalonian nationalism and secessionist movements. By the 90s, um, there were a lot of separatist movements in Spain uh, that gained a lot more traction, like ones in Basque and uh, Catalonia. Bleh, Catalonia. By 2006, uh, there was a thing called the Estat de Autonomia de Catalonia uh, that was established, which gave greater strength to the autonomy movement uh, of Catalonia, but that came with some pushback. For that vote, the vote came in 74% in favor of uh, more autonomy, but only 42% of voter turnout. So the Spanish court intervened and basically said this is all bullshit because you know not enough people came out to vote and they rewrote uh, several of the laws that Catalonia wrote for itself uh, and that created quite a few uh, revolts in Catalonia uh, and pushed them not farther from uh, uh, autonomy movements and more in the camp of outright independence <laughs> which brings us to 2017 which is when you know uh, uh, Jose's article is referencing, you know, in 2017, Catalonia voted to become independent. uh, And in this vote, 92% voted in favor of independence. But just before this vote, the Spanish government said that voting to leave Spain is sedition and therefore illegal. uh, And they sent in the national police force uh, to stop the vote. Now, people still voted. Uh, and the Catalan police actually ends up fighting the Spanish police, and it was pretty bloody. I mean, nothing like the ETA or anything like that, but they were definitely fighting in the streets um, to allow a vote. And if the poll numbers in Catalan are to are be to be believed, fifty two percent of the population voted. So a majority of the population voted, and they voted ninety two percent in favor of straight up independence. But of course, Spain doesn't recognize those results which is fascinating. And now you're caught up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you got to take note that Barcelona is the second largest city in Spain. Right. It's the region's capital. So, um, and Catalonia's population is like approximately 7.5 million people. Um, you know, holds about 16% of the total Spanish population, making it the, you know, the second most populated community within Spain. And it, like you mentioned earlier, it's one of the wealthiest. It's one of the wealthiest and highly industrialized regions in the country. Twenty-one mm-hmm. percent of and its GDP I, in Spain, by the way. So sixteen percent population, twenty-one percent GDP. So they're punching well above their weight in terms of what they yeah. do. Yeah. And, and um, 
you know, Catalonians believe, or people who are pro-Catalonian independence believe that, you know, they would be able to survive as an independent state because of its growing, mainly export market. There's a huge export mm-hmm. market. You know, they, they export to Germany and, and um, a lot of exports to Germany and France um, and um, in Austria and the Netherlands. They have a huge export country market across Europe. There's a lot of big companies in, in, in uh, Barcelona. And the GDP is, is larger than that of Portugal's. Yep. It generates a quarter of Spain's exports. And this is from the, the, I have something from the Financial Times. It was written in 2017. Um, The economy is more business-friendly, industrialized, and internationalized than most of the rest of Spain. Um, Arthur Mass, Catalonia's former president, often extolled the region's virtues as Denmark of the Southern Europe. And, you know, Denmark has a lot of pro-business laws. Um, you know, his pitch that Catalonian is almost dramatic in economic character has been put to its continental neighbors as a reason to let any independent nation seamlessly join the EU and eventually the Eurozone. But here's the consequence and, and um, what would be a challenge for Catalonia is if they were to secede, you know, Spain would likely boycott goods from Catalonia and then it would also, I guess, an immediate effect is that they would lose their EU membership. So, you know, trade would automatically become more expensive for, for exporters. And, um, you know, there's a risk that Spanish business would actually leave the area if secession were to happen. I believe in 2017, there were some major companies and some banks that left Catalonia um, into res- in response of, of a pos- possible separatist movement because they didn't want to, you know, go through the through the the headache that um, you know the penalties that the Spanish government would in in you know embark on them or or um, put down on them. Um, I have a quote from Miguel Otero, who's an analyst at the Elcano Royal Institute in Madrid. The secessionist threat will also shine a light on just what kind of economic policies any independent region would pursue, given the desperate groups that back independence and anti-capitalist anarchists to center-right nationalists. The liberals want less bureaucracy, the middle class wants less regulation, and the anarchists want a socialist dream of a leftist participatory democracy. So there's just different interests between different groups that are pushing for, for independence. Um, and it ranges from, you know, the kind of more laissez-faire economic types to the, the, the socialists who kind of want to use it as a, as a pet project for, um, you know, socialist-type policies. So it's very interesting. There was a very brief period in the Catalonian history um, in kind of the middle of the uh, uh, 20th century where Catalonia was actually a socialist state that wasn't set up by, um, they, they were socialist or, or communist. I forget the exact name that they attribute to this, but they were 100% on the left. Um, definitely a socialist uh, uh, system, and they weren't set up by the Russians, and they weren't a dicta- dictatorship. And they were actually quite prosperous for a very brief time, and everything was owned by individual workers. Like these workers would take over you know, like a hotel, as an example, all the workers, of the hotel would take over the hotel, kick out all the owners and, you know, all the farms became collectivized. All of the, you know, uh, um, manufacturing plants were take, t- taken over by 
their workers and they set up these workers committees to run those businesses and it actually ran quite well for a little while um and they a lot of socialists or or even communists and especially some anarchists believe that this is the one example uh, of socialism working of course you know the geopolitical situation uh in the region made it such that that got shut down um maybe we can talk more about that in future episodes but you know this is potentially one of those uh good examples for those lefties out there that are looking for uh, uh um communism that works <laughs> uh because it did for the most part but at the same time it was it had a dark past because they also created um internment camps uh or they, they literally called them concentration camps and this is before um before uh, uh hitler's concentration camps that where they would put their political dissidents and they would reform them with work so you know china took notes of that and is doing that currently with the uyghurs but um you know it's it's a weird situation you know like it was a a, a situation where uh, communism or, or socialism worked without a dictatorship but at the same time they were doing some dictatorial shit by putting their political dissidents in concentration camps which is wild yeah that's something that i would need to look more into that's an that's an interesting it's fascinating dude. case study yeah um you say that it was economically prosperous it was but viable. it certainly didn't seem yeah, like it was, it was politically prosperous yeah it was it was totally economically viable which was crazy but you know let's just say you know some shit went down world war ii happened you know all, all of it got restructured of course um it was very fascinating i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, but, you know, so kind of kind of bringing things together, there, there's a lot of reasons why the Catalonian uh, independence movement wants to be a thing. They cite a lot of these historical periods of time where they were a thing, or at least that they argued that they were a thing. Um, but a big uh, distinction point, uh, and this is, you know, quite common for these independence movements, is like a shared language, right? They, they use this as a sticking point. Now, when we were doing an episode a while back on if Ukraine... Uh, constitutes a nation, you know, I make an argument that 
you know, while they do have a distinct language, using the language as the only crux for why you deserve to be a thing can be kind of tenuous because languages are a little bit, you know, uh, uh, fluid, let's call it, you know. And so some of the arguments for uh, against Catalan is that, you know, all Catalan's language is just it's just a Western romance language. And so is Spanish. So there's not really a giant difference. That's the same kind of arguments that you hear um, by people who claim that Ukraine is not a thing because Ukrainian is so similar to Russian and therefore not unique or distinct in that way. So it is true that uh, Catalan and Spanish and Castilian Spanish, they're both Western Romance languages. But if you actually look at the linguistic trees, Spanish sits in the Ibero-Romance branch. And that's alongside languages like Portuguese, whereas Catalan sits in the Gallo-Romance branch, which is closer to things like French or the Occitan language in south of France. Um, So Catalan actually more closely resembles French than Castilian Spanish from a technical perspective. Um, But, you know, many people believe that Catalan deserves to be regarded as more of an official language within the EU because it's distinct from Castilian Spanish. And, you know, that kind of leads me to the question, like, all right, well, where, where do all these, you know, secession movements stem from? Is it strictly language? Is it culture? Is it, you know, is it, you know, historical precedent? Like, what is it? Well, I think one of the big arguments is that these secession movements within Catalonia stem a lot from just the uh, history of persecution. It's, it's blowback from that. And, um, you know, they'll argue that it's namely the Catalan language and, and the culture from um, not only, you know, not only, you know, Cisco, you know, during his regime from from um, 39 to 75, but, you know, previous um, kind of heavy handed leaders of Spain where they try to completely ban uh, the Catalan languages from all areas of public life. Um, you know, in addition, there was large campaigns to spread the Spanish language in Catalonia. And, you know, the goal, the goal was ultimately to, um, you know, create a unified state, can't, the cancel, you know, the, the Catalan culture and, uh, you know, create Spanish identity there. And, you know, these, these movements always end up the, to create blowback scenarios. Um, and I like to use right now as an example would be, uh, um, would be, um, you know, Xinjiang and, 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 um, in um, China, in northwestern China, where the Uyghur populations are, there's, you know, you get because of kind of China's kind of heavy handedness with exporting Chinese nationalism or Han nationalism or whatever you want to call it to kind of their backwater, their, 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 um, you know, their, their outskirts to their rural areas, you know, it creates like race riots and stuff. You know, you always hear about I mean, kind of like the untold story of the Uyghur issue in China is that, yeah, China is very heavy handed with with um, the Uyghurs. But there's also like um, there's also like a blow like the blowbacks never really reported of, mm-hmm. of what Uyghurs will kind of do in response. And, and it ranges from um, like mass stabbing attacks and coordinated campaigns of violence to just like large race riots between Uyghurs and Han, you know, so. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it's just kind of um, the the. It's always a good. It's always something to explore. What the um, when you embark on these giant nationalization campaigns, what it will do 
to minority languages and cultures and what they will do, what actions they will take to preserve themselves. In the case of Catalan, it's not violent. You know, it's 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 done by democratic means, but um, and I don't think it's going to turn violent or anything like that. But I think the sentiment does come from historical kind of uh, per- persecution. You know, um, you know they believe that the Spanish government doesn't do enough to protect their language or culture, so they have to do it themselves. And um, they also see heavy migration into Catalan, which you mentioned before. So they want to take the extra steps to provide you know, language speaking programs and enforced language laws. I know, for example, they, you know, it's, there's, um, the bills, I don't fully understand all the bills that I've read with the Catalan language. They seem kind of complicated and I've never been to Barcelona, so I can't speak to, uh, this in like kind of in in factual terms. It's more of just like from what I perceive from what I've read about it, but they make it mandatory in their schools, I think there's business um, regulations where businesses have to have like Catalan's uh, language. They'd have to have things written in Catalan, um, or they'll be fined. Um, which yeah, seems- I think they have to do both. They have to do both. It's kind of similar to Puerto Rico, where like uh, official government documents and things like like my mortgage, as an example, had to be written in both Spanish and and, uh, and English. I think they do something similar in, in Catalonia. Yeah. It should just be mandatory to have everything in English. <laughs> in in Catalonia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's do yeah. that. You know the meme where it's like, <laughs> so you're saying, where the guy's like, where they say, like, so you're saying that you want the whole world to be required to speak English, and a guy, and then it'll be something extreme, and then the guy will just be like, yes. <laughs> um, but... I don't think it's all language, too. Um, no, it's you know, not. There's, there's, different, there's different arguments. And one of, it seems, I found a paper online that says, uh, justif- justifying secession in Catalonia, resolving grievances or a means to a better future. It's written by a Anwen Elias and Norio Franco uh, Gullian. And... The, I mean, here's what the main conclusion of this is. We find that arguments for an independent Catalonia rarely include cultural claims. Instead, independence is advocated as a way of resolving political and economic grievances and creating a better, more democratic, and just Catalan society. In general, the case for Catalan independence has thus predominantly been made in political and to a lesser extent socio-economic terms with cultural justification or of marginal importance across the pro-independence movement as a whole and over the entire decade analyzed political justifications have predominant 50.9 percent of all frames used followed by socio-economic ones 37.5 percent of all frames used and i think much more to note is that uh arguments that are relating to um the quality of the democratic and political systems are the main are the main arguments for Catalonian independence. So they're not mm-hmm. the, the the arguments that are being made, and this is according to the study that's analyzing different you know mainly what political parties are saying in Catalonia um, that they're not necessarily arguing for the language preservation and the cultural uh, preservation, but it's more along the lines of criticizing the big Spanish bureaucracy and. Uh, criticizing their responses to crises like the uh, 2008 financial crisis. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they criticized Spain for not acting appropriately and, and, uh, and, and not acting fast enough. And their arguments are more like, you know, this we know the government more. This should be ran more at state and local levels. We have the best interest for the people who live in this area. The Spanish government proves itself to be inept and it constantly uh, unable to perform its duties. Therefore, Catalan independence is required because we'll just do a much better job with handling um, the politics and the government and the governance and the uh, economy there. So that's usually what the this is what this paper finds, um, that it's the, the cultural element isn't as big of a deal as just the um, as um, political, the, the governance and the in the economic issues where mm-hmm. the government just thinks it will do a much better job. And, and I think likewise, a lot of people feel the same way. Because I think the, the vast majority of people in, in Catalon, Catalan speak Spanish, um, mm-hmm. if not pretty much everyone speaks Spanish. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, many people obviously speak Catalonian because that's the region that they're in. But, you know, just because of the, the historical nature of uh, the importation of both the language uh, through force, but also the importation of the language through migration makes it so that in Catalonia— they obviously speak Spanish, um, and that's obviously the uh, official language of Spain is Castilian Spanish, right? Um, what's What's interesting, I, I'm trying to be super consistent here. You know, when, when I argued uh, for Ukraine being an independent and sovereign nation, you know, I said they are a thing. They want to be a thing. It doesn't matter anything about the language or the history as long as all the people that are there— you know, the majority of these people want to be their own thing. And it sounds like the same um, argument can be made here. You know, independent of the language issue, independent of the cultural issue, you know, independent of the political issues, like they seem to be voting to want to be their own thing. And and what's different about Catalonia, which I find very fascinating and, and commendable, is that they're doing it through democratic means, right? They're not like the Basque folks who are, you know, setting up terrorist organizations, right? Uh, to to get their means, they're not like you know in Ukraine where we have Luhansk and Donetsk, you know, uh, fighting against the uh, Ukrainian army, uh, which created a, the crisis that we see today. You know, it seems to be they're trying to talk this out and they're trying to do it through diplomatic means, and and I I could commend that. And for that reason, I'm actually starting to lean in favor of Catalonian independence. But I gotta say, man, it it doesn't seem like Spain is playing ball here, and it makes sense that they wouldn't, right? Catalonia being the the economic powerhouse that they are, they definitely don't want to lose that, right? But at the same time, they keep pressing this and suppressing the Catalonian um, independence movements. It's going to get ugly. I mean, think about, you know, some of the examples that we showed where, you know, the the more autonomy-focused parties of Catalonia were just pushing for greater autonomy but not necessarily straight-up independence— when those things got put down, they pushed them farther to the left and farther towards independence. Now we're squarely at independence, and Spain still isn't trying to play ball. I mean, they they try to say that voting to leave is sedition and you know illegal, uh, and they sent their police forces to stop a vote, like a like a democratic vote on whether or not to stay in Catalonia. And so, one way where I could see this going dirty is the. Um, he, he's a problematic example, but there's a rapper called Pablo Hazel. Have you heard of this guy before when you were doing research no. on Catalan? All right. Well, no, there's a rapper. 
and th he's just like a microcosm, but it's like an interesting case study. He's Catalonian. He's obviously pro-independence. Uh, and he's been saying some shit uh, against the Spanish government, right? So in his raps, he's like calling the the monarchy, uh, which by the way is kind of crazy that they still have a monarchy, right? They still have a king um, in Spain. Uh, and he's calling them like parasites and he's basically shitting on the, the Spanish government for being ineffective and he's, you know, pushing pro-independence um, uh, movements. Um, he also, and this is the problematic part, you know, praises a lot of these terrorist movements uh, like the ETA uh, for doing, you know, fighting the good fight, so to speak. And as a result, you know, fairly recently, um, he was arrested uh, for, and among the many reasons, the biggest reasons were for, apparently it's illegal to talk shit about the king of Spain or to offend the monarchy in Spain. So this is one of the reasons why he was put in jail. Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the official reasons why he got arrested. Of course, it's problem is very problematic that he's supporting terrorist organizations like the ETA, but at the same time, you know, it brings up questions about freedom of speech, right? So if the, <laughs> if the, um, the Spanish government is able to arrest a private citizen, a Catalonian citizen for just talking shit about the government, then, you know, what does that mean, uh, for people who are, you know, interested in pursuing independence in Catalonia. So, yeah, and there's been protests, wide protests to, to free Pablo Hazel. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm not going to have a position on Pablo because I think he's a very problematic uh, uh, actor um, in the uh, independence movement. But I think just the, the, the general mm, issue here is that Spain isn't allowing for a free and democratic process by, you know, trying to prevent a vote for independence. The reason why we're at independence in the first place is because Spain was super heavy-handed. Uh, I mean, they could have just had a, a more more free but still, you know, federalized version of Catalonia, but they suppressed that. And they just keep pushing this issue. I think there's going to be blowback, you know? And I wonder for how long do the Catalonians stay nonviolent and keep pursuing diplomatic means? Well, I'll tell you something. When I was in Italy, I think the number one music I heard was either like old, uh, U.S. oldies or yeah. Spanish rap. There you go. Spanish rap was very widespread around uh, around Italy. Um, I, I, I was kind of surprised. Like it seemed like every place would play like not reggaeton, like uh, Spanish like Spanish hip hop from Spain. Yeah. Um. But they might be playing um, yeah, some Pablo Hazel tracks man he might he maybe, might maybe spark I, I don't a maybe European it was independence him. movement like a european it, maybe maybe it was him spanish rappers i mean i certainly hope that there's no see what i what i don't i don't think that it would resort to violence because there's a high standard of living there and um people generally don't want to get violent when they're in a situation where there's a high level standard of living it's it's why i don't think like ultimately the united you know it's as bad as like you know the u.s is seems like it's at like a dangerous boiling point in terms of politics and maybe it is and it certainly seems like that with the rhetoric um between you know conservatives and liberals or republicans and democrats it's mm -hmm. the worst i think we've ever seen it since our lifetime 
Um, but I don't think anyone's going to get violent because I don't know, we're just not a very martial society here in the yeah. U.S. Yeah. We're just not martial enough. Maybe if it was like our grandfathers, like guys who fought in World War II and mm-hmm. we were going through the same kind of motions, th- then um, maybe they were martial enough to um, kill each other or fight each other. Just like, you know, if you look at the, um, the Weimar Republic and how— um, you know, there was political violence every single day where, like, you know, five to ten people were getting beat to death every day on the streets of Berlin. Right. Um, you know, that's just, that's not happening in Western countries right now. Like, people aren't beating each other to death over, um, you know, political movements. But maybe that can change. Again, I think it's, it's really in terms of, uh, I don't know, I just don't think people are hard like that anymore where they're ready to fight. It's so isolated. Like political violence is so isolated in the West. Um, you see like that more in Eastern Europe where the people are much harder. Like th- there's, there's way more likely to be political violence over uh, independence or, you know, issues of sovereignty in, in Russia and Ukraine just because the people are much harder there. Right. I think it's going to be much worse in the future now too. Because, I mean, we're, we're talking about two populations now that have a lot of experience in war. That's the type of thing that leads to, like, sure. martial-type societies. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I hope I'm not wrong. Excuse me. Yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying I hope I'm wrong. I'm saying I hope it doesn't turn to violence. Um, Dude, it, so. it's, I mean, go, coming back to Kosovo to go full circle here, right? Spain is not supporting Kosovo's independence because if they do, it's like almost like a tacit uh, support of independence movements generally in Europe, right? Yeah. So, you know, if Kosovo regains some semblance of, um, you know, autonomy over the Serbian, their Serbian population, right, through force, that could be an example to places like Catalonia that like, Hey, look, we tried the democratic thing. Didn't work. This is the only way that we can get what we want out of it. You know, so it's a little scary. And and, and like that, the instance in 2017 during that vote where the, the Spanish government sent in the Spanish police force to prevent a vote, a democratic vote, like that wasn't hurting anybody. I mean, of course, it could hurt Spain if they decided to leave, but, you know, they could have handled that diplomatically, but they chose not to. They chose violence, right? They chose to send their their monopoly on violence over into the Catalan region, which disrupted the autonomy that that the Catalan region had. And the Catalan police force responded in kind, you know, and it wasn't wasn't nearly as violent or as bloody as any of these other examples, like in Basque with the terrorism or, you know, in in potentially in Kosovo or in Ukraine. It certainly wasn't that violent, but I mean, how many more of those incidents can you have, right, to prevent a free and fair democratic, you know, ele- uh, election? And, and to that point, that just kind of brings me further to the Catalonian side of this argument because they they seem to be doing it right, right? They're playing by the books. Well, also, Barcelona doesn't have, like, a horrible unemployment problem. Most of Spain. Like, I've always read that, you know, over the past years, Spain has had a very bad problem with, with uh, employment. I don't know um, much about know that. How that translates. I don't know much about that, but a big point, I was watching a bunch of interviews from Catalonians uh, last night. A big point 
that they're super upset about is that um, Catalonia happens to be, at least from a taxation um, standpoint, standpoint, like they they give more to Spain than they receive in return. It's kind of like an argument that you can make with states in the United States, right? Like New York, California, Texas, they all export more money in their taxes than they get in return from the state, from the government, from the federal government. And so, you know, the Spanish government isn't necessarily reinvesting those tax dollars coming from Catalonia back into, you know, infrastructure or, you know, other uh, um, government projects in Catalonia. And in fact, what they're doing is turning around and, and supporting the more, the less prosperous regions in Spain. And so there's a, there's a pretty big argument there that the Catalonians are making is like, we're supporting the Spanish welfare state and we don't want to do that anymore. Right. It's a, it's a yeah. st- pretty strong argument. Right. Uh, and it's, and it's kind of devoid of any cultural or historic, you know, um, uh, sticking points. Right. It's just saying yeah. pretty straight up, like, Hey, we're doing fine over here. We're supporting the rest of, of your welfare states, you know, um, and we're still not getting the autonomy that we want. Right. So we want out. I don't know. It's a pretty solid argument. Um, well, regional taxation is uh, another way to really instigate a secession movement. Right. When you uh, t- uh, um, tax scape- regional scapegoating is a term used. When yep. you tax one area to um, finance or invest in another area in your country. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's like what when, like what leads to secession movements when it's done in the opposite direction. When you um, re, when you scapegoat like a more rural area to finance mm-hmm. like metro metropolitan areas, right? That's like when leads to like some real kind of like red state blue state type divides. Mm-hmm. But now it's it's the opposite where it's like the big blue state versus the red. St- you know, it's it's um. It's it's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's very it's interesting. Um, but let's see, we're about an hour and twenty minutes. I got to get out. I got to get out of here now. <laughs> sure, I have to jump on the road and go to a wedding. But this is interesting. We can probably make a series about going in different secession movements, or even I know uh, a Spanish a civil war could be an interesting topic as well. But let us know what you guys would like us to talk about. There are many interesting topics in the world um all right is there anything else that you would like to add oh all right guys uh thanks for listening to another episode of bro history if you want to support the show rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support our show you can also join us on our patreon channel and to get access to our slack and um yeah keep on listening we will be back next week Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. 
So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.